brownies became something else when, when AIDS hit. People were sick from the cures. And brownies were the one thing that helped. I'm Lisa Morehouse, and this is California Foodways. I'm traveling to every county in the state finding stories about food, agriculture, and the people that make both possible. I'll confess it took me a long time to bring this podcast back because, let's be honest, it's been hard to think about much beyond the coronavirus and the election. But this story I'm sharing today, even though it starts in the 1970s, it just feels so relevant to what's happening today. So we're going to travel back in time to when the world was facing another public health crisis, another time when the federal government was slow to respond and communities had to step in to take care of each other. We're going to meet a woman who provided relief to people who were dying with an unexpected and illegal source of comfort. Her name is Meredith Voltz, and she used to run a bakery called Sticky Fingers Brownies. For this story, I'm turning the mic over to Meredith's daughter, Alia, because this is really the story of her family. I wasn't even born yet when my mom arrived in San Francisco. It was 1975, and she came just in time to have her mind blown on Polk Street on Halloween. It was filled with costumes and color and drag queens and energy. My mom was ready for a scene like this. And San Francisco was, it was like a a land of promise, liberal and artistic and free. All right, you might not be able to tell yet, but my mom was kind of a hippie. Not kind of a hippie. I was a full tilt, full-on boogie hippie. She looked the part. Big head of frizzy hair, no makeup, no bra, lots of jewelry, and a leather vest with fringe. My mom was an artist, but she wasn't quite making her rent, so she joined a friend selling baked goods and coffee on Fisherman's Wharf. Now, today, the wharf is one of the most visited tourist traps in the world. But back then, it was a total artist scene. They had little card tables set up, handcrafted jewelry, hand-knit booties. There were also street performers. There was the butterfly man. There was the human jukebox. Her friend would carry a Guatemalan pouch of marijuana brownies over her shoulder, And that pretty quickly became the most lucrative part of her little business. So when she decided to move to Europe, she offered the business to my mom. Like every major decision in my mom's life, she consulted an ancient Chinese oracle called the I Ching. This begins by tossing brass coins six times. I picked up the coins and I tossed a hexagram. Is it correct to start to sell brownies? And very quickly, my answer became clear that this was my destiny. The whole fact that it was dangerous really appealed to me. There was one little problem. She can't boil water. (laughs) I'm lousy at baking, great at connecting with people. Enter Barb. My name is Barbara Hartman Jenison, and I was the first official baker of Sticky Fingers Brownies of San Francisco. This meant long hours hanging out with my mom and listening to music. We always listened to the Rolling Stones. 
especially brown sugar. The Eagles, it was the Doors, Bonnie Raitt. I think we thought we were Bonnie Raitt, but. <laughs> Barb wasn't just making brownies. Pumpkin bread, blueberry muffins, cranberry orange bread. One evening, after a full day of handling the brownies on the wharf, Barb got an idea. I held my hands up and said, sticky fingers. And boom, that was the name of the business. The name was perfect. A little sweet, a little dirty, and a little rock and roll. So Barb was putting in longer and longer hours in the kitchen. She got tired one night, and this led to a turning point. She made a mistake and forgot to put the flour into the brownie mix. We were kind of licking out of the pan, the batter, and and suddenly we got very high. Then it was like, aha. Meredith was jumping on the table. It was like, well, look what we did, look what we did. <laughs> Less flour meant shorter cooking times. It also made the brownies much more potent and really, really gooey. And they would be like kind of green looking. Because of Barb, we started to make excellent brownies. They got really popular. And pretty soon, they're delivering to small businesses all over the city. Of course, selling any amount of marijuana for any reason in those days was a felony. They could have gotten years in prison. Did that worry them? Not really. What can I tell you? Fools have no fear. I never felt threatened at all. The I Ching was a silent partner. My mom consulted the I Ching over every decision. I mean, we wouldn't even go to a bar without tossing a hexagram first. And that's what kind of let us maneuver a very dangerous territory, what was very dangerous at that time. At this point, my mom is making money. She's got time to make artwork. She's making new friends all over the place. But the one area in her life that feels unfulfilling is her love life. So Barb set her up on a blind date. My name is Doug Volz, and my role in Sticky Fingers was I was a part of the game, part of the dance. Sometimes I think I was the oil in the wheels. My dad was a visionary artist. He'd been going to UC Berkeley, but dropped out to attend the Berkeley Psychic Institute. We traded readings. I read his row cards, and he read my aura. So he went to her house and saw her standing at the top of these long Victorian stairs. There was light beaming behind her from the open door, and he remembers it being like a vision, just feeling this wapow. It was a very strong impression. And the first week with her, I did more drugs than I'd done in my life previously up until that point in time. It was pretty wild. They moved in together almost right away into a warehouse in the Mission that had been a livery stable. The whole thing was a total fire trap. My dad joined Sticky Fingers Brownies, and by this time, the brownies had completely overtaken the other baked goods. They're producing something like 10,000 brownies per month, and they made these hand-drawn designs for the bags that the brownies came in. To do their deliveries, they would dress up in outrageous outfits. There were a lot of hats. There were kimonos. Spandex. Oh, yeah, that was, that was really big in those days. By this point, Sticky Fingers Brownies was likely the largest cannabis edibles business in California, which makes you wonder, why would they draw so much attention to themselves if they're doing something illegal? The way to be invisible 
in a situation is to stand out. If you tiptoe around and hide, it draws attention to you doing something suspicious. But if you're bright and you're flashy and you're highly visible... Who would suspect something illegal was going on? In my life overall, my shield has always been art. And and part of the art was the dressing up. And dressing up played really well on her newest route, which was in the Castro neighborhood. Gay men and women began leaving closets all across America and coming to Castro Street. There were beautiful boys everywhere. There was a style and there were sideburns and mutton chops and mustaches. They were draped over cars and leaning on buildings and uh, sitting on steps. Lovely men everywhere. She's just starting to break in this neighborhood when she sees a store called Hot Flash of America. And who would not go into a place to sell brownies? It's called Hot Flash of America, for God's sake. Also during that time, I was hand-delivering to Sylvester. The queen of disco was living right in the Castro. By this time, Sylvester had a breakout hit called Mighty Real that was playing all over the country. He always had an entourage, and there'd be Sylvester generally in, a, in lounging pajamas or a kimono, and they'd buy a massive amount of brownies. Sticky Fingers brownies got so popular in the Castro that my mom couldn't keep up. So her friends at a neighborhood hotspot that was called the Village Deli started selling them from behind the counter. One of the people who sold brownies was Dan Clowry. Mary was just coming by with a big smile on her face and her beautiful eyes. I always thought she would look like a mermaid or like a peacock feather. Well, we're crossing 18th and Castro Street. As a friend of mine used to say, this is smack dab in the center of the universe. Dan moved to San Francisco on June 11th, 1978. He drove his Oldsmobile convertible into the neighborhood and saw that iconic Castro Theater sign. I had such a feeling of excitement and thrill, and I could tell I was starting a new life. I wasn't disappointed. He landed a job at the Village Deli within hours of arriving. And by the end of the day, I was stoned on brownies. By this point, Mom was lugging more than brownies around. I was about six months old. They'd be pushing the baby stroller. With brownie bags hanging off of them. She carried up to 40 dozen brownies at a time. (laughs) That was kind of cute, because baby and brownies, they were a fixture on Friday. The fact that everyone knew they could pick up Sticky Fingers brownies at the Village Deli gave the cafe a bit of celebrity status. Oh, you're the guys that sell the brownies. (laughs) This added to the, the general feeling of... Euphoria in the Castro at the time. Gay liberation politics were hot and happening in San Francisco. I mean, I went into almost every store you can imagine. And then, of course, coming up to the Harvey Milk clan and the Photoshop. Castro Camera was a tiny, cluttered little Photoshop. It was also campaign headquarters for Harvey Milk, who was becoming the most iconic figure of the gay liberation movement. Most importantly, every gay person must come out. I got there in June of 78, so I only had, what, four or five months of euphoria, then it all came crashing down. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. 
both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. I can remember standing in the warehouse and, and going, oh my God, I could feel the earth shift. Dan White killing Moscone and Milk. You could feel um, the shock, the, the, the stillness on Castro Street. At nightfall, there was a candlelight vigil that ran from Castro Street all the way down to City Hall, like a river of candlelight. The candlelight march was... Uh, one of the most powerful things I've ever, ever been involved in. It just was the start of a whole new feeling in the Castro. Uh, then it became anger and, and shock and rebellion. The neighborhood changed, the city changed, and then my family began to change. Even the I Ching hexagrams my mom threw took an ominous turn. Suddenly I'm getting hexagrams like shock, thunder, the abysmal. My parents thought they were about to get caught. There were other things going on. There were other busts happening in San Francisco and the like. We announced ahead of time that we were closing down. And people started to panic by Offers poured in from people who wanted to buy the business or buy the recipe or buy the customer list. My mom threw more and more I Ching hexagrams and kept getting the same answer. Not right. Not right. Not right. So they decided to give away the recipe. On the last bag, they printed the recipe and my mom wrote out in cursive, give it up and you get it all. And at the bottom, we say power to the people. We love you, Sticky Fingers Brownies. A couple days later, which was Monday, August 6th, 1979, Herb Kane, who was a beloved San Francisco columnist, wrote, Thank God it's Friday had a hollow ring in certain parts of town last Friday for that bakery in the mission went out of business. In this city of wagging tongues, the secret of the brownie ladies and the mission bakery never got to the law but the owners decided not to push their potluck. Fridays will never be the same. My family moved up to a little town called Willits in Mendocino County. We're making a tape to send to your Gam Jan. Hi. What did you do? Did you do at the fair? The children's fair. I had some ice cream. In my parents' haste to get out of San Francisco, they moved way up to the boonies with no plan for making a living. Pretty soon it seemed obvious that our money, whatever we had, was running out. It was a matter of months. My mom started making these monthly runs back down to the city, often when rent was coming due. She'd stay at Beck's Motor Lodge on the edge of the Castro. I remember hanging out on the motel bed, and I found it so exotic. It wouldn't be long before the brownies became much more than a money-making venture for my mom. It was on one of these monthly runs that she first noticed a little purple lesion on one of her customers' hand, um, another one on someone's neck. 
I believe it was 1981, doing my run in the Castro. I walked past Star Pharmacy and saw a poster that had somebody showing their lesions with Carposi, and it was talking about the gay cancer. And I remember thinking, oh, what is it? Good evening, I'm Elizabeth Farnsworth. Epidemiologists are calling acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS, the worst infectious disease since polio. It's death toll. The vibe in the Castro was beginning to change. No longer was that kind of sea of pretty men draped over cars and sitting on steps. It was, there was a fear. It was palpable. From his post at the Village Deli, Dan Clowery watched the AIDS epidemic unfold. Suddenly, it just came along and was taking people out right and left. I was one of the lucky ones. As manager at the Village Deli, Dan started to see his role change. It became about making sure his customers felt comfortable. I just did my best to, you know, try to not make these people feel ashamed. One day, one of Dan's regular customers came in, and his head was swollen and and purple like a grape. You could just barely see who he was, but he was always a character in the neighborhood. He loved to dress up in 1940s military uniforms. With his head being all swollen up and everything, he would dress himself up in his outfits, and he'd put that little cap on the top of his head, and he'd come to the door knowing that I was going to be there and say, Girl, you look fabulous today. (laughs) You could see him just straighten up and feel for a few minutes, you know. It wasn't nearly as bad, so, uh. My mom started losing friends, too. First it was acquaintances, then friends of friends or lovers of friends, and then she lost her best friend, Philip. Philip was beautiful, with the kind of smile where his whole face smiled. Great sense of humor, a killer sense of humor. He was totally fun. One minute we were going to the opera, and the next minute he was dead. (sighs) AIDS was still so little understood. They didn't know if that was airborne or to the touch. They didn't know yet. And for me, I didn't care. I was just there to help. I wasn't there to judge. I wasn't there to be afraid. And you had to put your big girl panties on for this. Being in the middle of that plague, my gut never let me down there. I always felt that I would be safe. And that I would be safe. It's hard to exaggerate the degree of apathy with which the Reagan administration met the AIDS epidemic as it wiped out tens of thousands of people. President Ronald Reagan didn't even speak the word AIDS for years. And throughout the entire AIDS crisis, there was chronic underfunding of health organizations and a lack of government support and attention. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, General Hospital opened the first AIDS ward in the country, and regular people became activists. My mom started going to protests again. There were various activist groups. ACT UP was really punk rock and dramatic. They campaigned to get early access to experimental drugs. 
and to make sure that when the drugs came out, they'd be affordable to people who needed them. When they did come up with AZT, that was, it was the only thing they had. Every place you went in the Castro, you would hear, because everybody had the little beeper with their pills in it, and every four hours they had to take their pills. Restaurants, movies, bars, you would just keep hearing, it soon became clear that AZT wasn't effective over the long term. Though it did extend some people's lives temporarily, it was also highly toxic. People were sick from the cures. And brownies were the one thing that helped. In the 70s, Sticky Fingers Brownies was all about partying and having a good time and making art and being subversive. The brownies became something else when, when AIDS hit. Now it became a calling. It helped with depression. It helped with the side effects of the drugs. It helped caregivers. I would give my friend just like an eighth of a brownie, and then we'd go out for dinner. And it was, it was great for an appetite stimulant. People were like, that really helped. I'll take two dozen more. In the 90s, Dan Clowery would leave the village deli and become a nurse. He eventually helped open the AIDS unit at Mount Zion Hospital. I ended up using that experience in my nursing because we would let people smoke marijuana out the windows of the hospital, anything we could do. My parents divorced when I was nine. Mom and I moved back to San Francisco. At this point, I was deemed old enough to help bake. And sometimes I went with my mom on deliveries. I loved spending the time with my mom. The deliveries could be hard. During the AIDS crisis, there were a lot of home deliveries. By this point, my mom had been delivering to Sylvester at his house for 10 years. After a while delivering at Sylvester's, I only dealt with his entourage when he got really sick. There's another delivery that's really vivid in my mind. Um, there was a couple who were friends of Sylvester's who lived in a beautiful Victorian. We cried in each other's arms after that one. The man who came to the door was so emaciated you could see every bone in his body. I did not know what we were walking into. He ushered us into a beautiful living room and I noticed a photo that was on their mantle. They were on a beach with their arms around each other, sand on their shoulders, and smiling. As the bed was out in the middle of the room. And it took a while for me to register that what looked like a pile of blankets on this bed was a person. The caregiver was sick and the guy in the bed was on his last leg. You know, looking at two skeletal people. And it was ugly. And his caretaker, who was also his partner, and who was also dying, woke him up to say, hey, I've got these brownies, it'll make you feel better. After that, when I helped my mom bake on weekends, there was a new reason for me to do it. Pot brownies weren't going to save anyone's life over the long term, but it brought them relief. And there wasn't a lot of relief in those days. At the same time... Say yes to your life. Nancy Reagan had started the Just Say No campaign. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. 
and it came to my school. There were PSAs from the Ad Council. This is your brain on drugs. Remember that egg hitting a frying pan? Any questions? My mom stayed under the radar. She never got caught. But other people involved in getting marijuana to people with AIDS got busted and did jail time. And they took the fight for medical marijuana public. One of those people was Brownie Mary. Kind of conservative. She kind of looked like the church lady down the block. You know, you wouldn't look at her and say criminal right there. Dennis Perone, my mom's close friend and customer, he kept opening up dispensaries and he kept getting busted. He became a driving force behind the medical marijuana movement. Dennis co-authored Proposition 215, which passed a statewide vote in 1996. Right about the same time, protease inhibitors hit the market. They start to have some medicines that seem to be in some way helping people live longer with it. Over the next two years, my mom watched cannabis clubs proliferate throughout San Francisco and realized that her brownies just weren't as necessary as they had been. She left San Francisco and has been making art full-time ever since. Nice. Here we go. Shoulder, hip, spine. My mom is now 72 years old. She's living in Desert Hot Springs, where she paints and teaches art to teenagers and retirees, like in this life drawing yeah. class. And then over here, this is a continuous line that goes from her neck. So it's one solid, there you go, yes. In California today, the adult use of cannabis is legal. My mom is totally out of the game. The most she'll do is enjoy an occasional edible while she's at home painting. She doesn't talk about the old days that much. But I've just written a book about her life, so she's starting to have to reveal her San Francisco days. Where I had a rather checkered past, and I'm about to be outed big time. I certainly can be criticized for raising a baby and a child in what could be considered a drug environment. It was an unconventional childhood, but my mom has an incredibly big heart. She was extremely loving and supportive of me growing up, and she also had that same kind of love for her friends and for her community, and that led her to do this risky work to help ease the suffering of people with AIDS. And it was pretty stunning. It still is when I look back at how many beautiful people passed. You know, so it was a dangerous time. But in this case, there wasn't a thrill out of the danger. It became a sense of, well, I have a purpose here in this. There's something I could do to help a little, relieves a little pain. And there was a sense of that. There was. That's it for this episode of California Foodways. The story was reported and produced by me, Lisa Morehouse. It originally aired on KQED's California Report magazine. Our theme music is by Takanobu. California Foodways is funded in part by California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can learn more at calhum.org. 
The podcast receives support from Fern, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Follow CA Foodways on social media and visit our website, californiafoodways.com.